During the weeks between Thanksgiving and Christmas, it's the time of year that we call on the church calendar Advent. And Advent is the time where two words, if you remember, I said we are to keep in mind as we go through the season. And that are the words remembrance and anticipation. We remember the first Advent, the first appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we look forward to that time. If you remember that first appearing of Jesus Christ, what did the gospel writers record it? They said his name to be was Emmanuel, God with us. And what is it that we anticipate? The evangelist John in the book of Revelation talks about, then I saw new heavens and a new earth, for the first heavens and first earth had passed away. And he says, there will be no more dying, no more death, no more mourning, no more crying, no more pain. For now, the dwelling of God is with man, and the old order has passed away. And behold, Jesus says, I'm the Alpha and the Omega. I make all things new. We look back at what? Emmanuel, God with us, and we look ahead. We hope, and we have anticipation, and we're filled with wonder and joy at now the dwelling of God is with men. And why are we doing this series? We're doing this series because the Bible is the unfolding of the story of salvation. The story of salvation in the form of a narrative centered in the person of Jesus. So would you pray with me as we ask God to open the eyes of our minds and our hearts to illumine to us the wondrous things written of him in his word. Father, we pray that your spirit would be our teacher. We pray, Father, that you would give us understanding and that we would draw near to you by the spirit working in your word. That, Father, we would be transformed and changed, not just given information, but that our hearts and our minds truly affected so that we are more and more conformed to the likeness and the image of Jesus Christ. Father, thank you for your word. We pray, Lord, it will not return void or empty, and we give you these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Christianity is all about salvation. Why we need it, which also answers the question who we are, why we're here, we're image bearers made in the image of God, what it is, how it comes about, and what, is it's for, what it is for, its purpose, its goal, its end, if you would. Christianity is about salvation, and salvation is a whole lot bigger, certainly not less than, but a whole lot bigger than just Jesus died for our sins. I think so often we get infected a little bit by the individualism of American culture, where we think of Christianity as just about Jesus died for your sins, but it's a whole lot bigger than that. And if Christianity is about salvation and the whole Bible is about salvation, the unfolding, if you would, of the mystery of Christ, there's probably no better place to learn of that story than the book of Exodus. In Luke chapter 9, verse 31, and you're going here, I thought you were preaching on Exodus, and I am. But let me refer to Luke chapter 9 real quickly, because it's real interesting. It's the account of Jesus' transfiguration. And his entire life, according to that gospel, is viewed from the lens or the viewpoint of the Exodus. Luke chapter 9 says, as he was praying, the appearance of his face changed. 
and his clothes became as bright as a flash of lightning. Two men, Moses and Elijah, appeared in glorious splendor, talking with Jesus. And they spoke about his departure. And the word departure there is actually the Greek word for exodus. So in other words, what Jesus went through was an exodus. Here's Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration talking with Moses and Elijah about his exodus. And the paradigm of exodus gives us a model or a paradigm of the entirety of our Christian lives. So as we look at the unfolding of the mystery of Christ, we're going to look at it this morning from the paradigm or the model of the exodus. So if you have Bibles, turn with me to Exodus chapter 1. This is actually going to be in a sense, a different sort of sermon in that I am preaching from most of Exodus chapters 1 and 2. But if I decided I was going to read all of Exodus 1 and 2, I would go, well, there's the reading of the, of the Word. Let's go to the Lord's Supper. Let's go watch football. And it'd be like, where's the sermon? So what I did was we printed chapter 1, verse 15 to chapter 2, verse 15, which is still a long enough Bible reading. Hang with me. But I have faith in you. You can do it. And I'm going to read that, but really this sermon is about the entire narrative of Exodus chapters 1 and 2. So hear the word of the Lord. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shifra and the other Puah, when you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him, but if it is a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, why have you done this? And let the male children live. The midwives said to Pharaoh, because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. So God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, every son that is born to the Hebrews you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. When she could hide him no longer, she took him For a basket made of bulrushes, daubed it with the bitumen and pitch, she put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the river bank. And his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river while her young women walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman, and she took it. When she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, This is one of the Hebrews' children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go. So the girl went and called the child's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. And when the child grew up, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses because she said, I drew him out of the water. One day when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. He looked this way and that and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. 
When he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together. And he said to the man in the wrong, why do you strike your companion? He answered, who made you a prince and a judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, surely the thing is known. When Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian. And he sat down by a well. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. I mean, I wonder what reaction you have as we read that fairly lengthy narrative. I don't know about you, but I think to myself, oh my goodness, that's an awful lot of drama. Will Moses live? Will he die? Oh no, he killed a person. Oh no, he confronted. Now he's got to flee to this place. What is going on and what is God communicating in and through this narrative. In other words, here's a way to ask the question. What do we learn about the mystery of Christ? What do we learn about the unfolding of the mystery? Or another way to put it, how do we understand the mystery? What is its content? And I want to put before you that its content is basically three things. That as we learn here, the mystery is about the drama of deliverance, the covenant community, and the wonderment of worship. Understanding salvation and how salvation unfolds through the pages of Scripture, understanding the unfolding mystery of Christ is about the drama of deliverance. It's about God forming a people, not just individuals, but a people, a covenant family, a covenant community for himself, all leading to the wonderment of worship. Tremper Longman writes these three words, deliverance, covenant, worship. He says, without the book of Exodus, the Bible would be like a movie, lacking three early scenes. Deliverance, covenant, and worship. He says, Exodus provides the events and narrative, the themes and imagery foundational for understanding the story of Israel and of Jesus. And I want to make this thesis. I think we don't understand the New Testament properly if we don't understand its unfolding, its foundation, and its grounding in the Old Testament. Most of the New Testament, if it's not direct quotes, it's allusions to the narrative and the history and the prophecy and the poetry and the worship of the Old Testament. And so just like I depicted it last week, I said, we need to think, here's a Bible reading strategy for you. And I'm going to be so bold as to say, I have a goal for you. My goal is for you to absolutely love the Old Testament. To not just be New Testament Bible readers and New Testament scriptures, but to have the Old Testament absolutely come alive for you. And here's my reading strategy for you. I gave you this illustration last week. You have to picture the unfolding mystery of Christ like you would an acorn in the ground. It appears in the beginning, it's an acorn, it's invisible, it's planted underneath, but then what does it do? It grows bit by bit, year by year, decade by decade, into a mighty, giant, huge, strong oak tree. The oak tree is Christ. But how is he recorded for us? How is he revealed? How did God disclose the story, the narrative of salvation? He began it in the... In the Old Testament, almost like this little acorn that we watch and see. And when we read the pages of the Old Testament, we have to see this mystery unfold before our very eyes. 
So let's look at each one of these themes from the narrative here in Exodus. And first of all, salvation or the mystery is about the drama of deliverance. And to understand this, we have to go back to what we looked at last week in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15. To understand the story of salvation, to understand the story of Exodus, you have to see it in light of this particular promise of Genesis 3.15. Because here's the acorn, and this is foundational. God in the garden, after Adam and Eve tumble into sin, choose independence from God over partnership and communion with God, We looked at last week the comprehensiveness of sin and the commitment of God. God reveals his commitment in these words. And I will put enmity between you and the woman. He's speaking to the serpent here. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head. You will strike his heel. Here's your Bible reading strategy. The remainder of the Bible is an unfolding of this promise. As a matter of fact, when you read every other passage of Scripture, you have to read it in light of this promise. I mean, beginning right away, right after that promise in Genesis 3, you have Genesis 4 with the two brothers, Cain and Abel, and Cain killing Abel. What's going to happen to the promise? Okay, the commitment of God. Then you have violence on the earth and corruption of the earth. God destroying the earth in a flood. What's going to happen to the promise? Commitment of God. Noah. Then you've got Tower of Babel. People doing their own thing. Making a city. Making a commitment for themselves. God scattering them. What's going to happen to the promise? Abraham. The unfolding of the Bible. If you want to understand the Bible and you want to understand history, it is the unveiling, it is the unfolding of this particular promise. And the promise basically unfolds here like this. First of all, it says, I will put enmity between you and the woman. Speaking to the serpent, here's what God is saying. And this is, by the way, God is the first prophet here. He's speaking this prophecy And what is he saying? There's going to be hostility. History is going to be these two lines of descendants. And he's speaking metaphorical here. Okay, we're not talking about a physical serpent and all these little serpents running around. He's saying the line of history is going to be drawn between two lines of descendants. And you have to trace these out. And what's going to happen between them is there's going to be animosity, hostility, enmity. That's extended by the second stage, which says between your offspring and hers. It's going to be played out in the likes of Cain and Abel, Isaac and Ishmael, Jacob and Esau, Moses and Pharaoh. And the animosity will finally reach a climax, a climactic battle between these individuals, their seeds, Jesus and Satan, when it will be, he will crush your head and you will strike his heel. And I want you to notice that the one referred to simply as he is mentioned first because he's the sovereign one. He's the preeminent one. He's the superior one. You can't read the rest of the Bible correctly without understanding this particular passage. This passage brings us the drama of deliverance. And everything else that unfolds from it is what is going on to happen? What will happen to the people of God? What becomes of the promises of Genesis 
Which brings us to the next point, the mystery of the covenant community. Because here's what goes on. The book of Exodus describes God's relationship with a people, specifically his people, Israel. And we learn here that Moses' life as an individual kind of runs as a paradigm and runs parallel to Israel's life. Let me just show you a couple of different things. First of all, in Exodus 2, the beginning verses here, verses 1 and 2 says, Now a man of the house of Levi married a Levite woman, and she conceived, gave birth to a son. When she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. So what do we learn here? Moses was born a slave in Egypt. He was born in oppression. He was born in persecution. He was the victim of an attempted murder. In chapter 1, we learn that Israel was born as slaves in Egypt. Pharaoh enslaved them. Pharaoh oppressed them and attempted to murder all the males. Chapter 1, verse 2, then 22, Pharaoh gave this order to all the people. Every boy that is born to you must be thrown into the Nile, but let every girl live. Moses lives. How does he live? By undergoing a water ordeal. Chapter 2, verse 10 says, when the child grew older, she took him to Pharaoh's daughter, and, she, and he became her son. She named him Moses, saying, I drew him out of the water. Later on in chapters 14 and 15, when we have recorded for us the Exodus proper, how is Israel delivered from Egypt? But through the Red Sea, through a water ordeal. So we learn here that Moses and Israel, their lives parallel. We learn that they go together. Now let me apply something to us real briefly here as we look at this. Because when we're looking at this, I want to say, when and where is the name of God mentioned in all of this? Do you notice this as we read through the narrative? It sure seems like the name of God is absent. He seems totally absent. And I don't know about you, but do you ever have times in your life, and this calls for a little honesty and vulnerability, where you wonder, where is God in my life? He doesn't seem too real. What is going on? God, what are you up to? Are you, pre- are you speaking to me? I'm reading your word, and I'm not seeming to discover a whole, whole lot. What is happening here? He is hardly mentioned at all, but let me assure you of something. He is not absent. He is working continually behind the scenes. Let me just point out a couple of things. Do you think it's by accident that Moses happens to be raised in Pharaoh's household? Coincidence, right? He's going to only be prince and judge and leader of Israel to bring them up at Egypt, and it just so happens that God has him saved and brought into Pharaoh's household, where he gets the best of training, where he gets the best of education, where he gets the best of leadership. Is God absent? Absolutely not. If you're saying the presence of God is only when you see him, you are in charge and in authority, God's not. If it's dependent on it making sense to you, you're in the driver's seat. You're not taking it by faith, you're taking it by the sight and the appearance of what makes sense to you. 
God is behind the scenes in all of this, only getting the best tutelage, the best tutoring, the best education, and being prepared to be the leader and the champion of Israel. To be what? That offspring of the woman who the greater Moses will one day be Jesus Christ. Do you see how the drama is unfolding? Even when it appears that God is absent, he is not. And what does that teach us? It teaches us grace. It teaches us grace. The drama of deliverance, forming a people into his covenant community. He is saving and redeeming a people for himself. That leads to the last thing, the wonderment of worship. Salvation is all about worship. We can talk about the exodus and deliverance or liberation to be formed as a community and people. And fellowship's a wonderful thing, isn't it? We like fellowship. I don't know about you. I'm looking forward to the Christmas party next Saturday. Sounds fun. But the point of all those things, the point of all of that is not that in and of itself. It is all for worship. Let me ask you a question. I want you to be honest with me now for a second. When you hear the word Exodus and think about the Exodus, what's the first thing that comes to your mind? Now, I want you to be honest. Isn't it Charlton Heston in the movie? I mean, aren't we thinking of Charlton Heston? Big, here he is, he's coming out, let my people, that's my best Charlton Heston imitation. Not very good, I know. But can I tell you something? Even though in the movie, Charlton Heston playing Moses says, let my people go, that is not theologically accurate at all. Because in Exodus chapter 5, verse 1, it says, afterward Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and said, this is what the Lord So it's not Moses saying, Moses is the mouthpiece of God. This is what the Lord, Israel's God, says. And it's Israel's God who says, let my people, this delivered, this free, this liberated covenant community, let them go. Why? The very next words are, so that they may hold a festival to me in the desert. The purpose of the exodus in John Piper's words, is white-hot worship. Liberation leads to covenant relationship, which leads to worship. How does that work? How does that put together? The answer is through the gospel. The answer is to the degree we understand the grace of God. It is grace that leads to worship. I want you to notice a couple of things here as we work our way through the narrative. Even here in the early chapters of the book of Exodus, who is it that God works through? How does God accomplish his purposes? He's working through the weak and the powerless. God works salvation through outsiders, not insiders. We learn that in the book of Genesis. It's barren women that he works salvation, that he brings the offspring. So that's the offspring of promise. It's the second son, Jacob. Not the first son, ruddy, rugged, manly Esau, that he works through. As Paul writes to the Corinthians, God is showing us when he says, consider my brothers who and what you were when you were called. Not many of you were strong or wise by worldly standards, but you were weak. 
You were without. You were powerless. You were nothing. So that why? It could all depend on the grace of God and our boast is in the Lord and the Lord alone. I wish I had noticed this detail myself, but I can't take credit for it. I have to give credit. I heard this from another pastor, but I think it is a really good detail that even shows this. I want you to notice that even the midwives here are given names. You notice here that when we get to glory, new heavens and new earth, we, we can look up Shifra and Pua, but we don't even know the name of the Pharaoh. The king of Egypt, and commentators kind of argue and do what commentators do. They're not sure. And is it Ramses I? Is it Ramses II? Is it 1400 BC? Is it 1200 BC? Is it that? Nobody knows. And since all scripture is inspired by God, that is completely purposeful and deliberate that we would know the identities that ones who, and you have to put yourself in that culture, Okay, in that culture, you have women in general in that culture would be second-class citizens and more disregarded. But midwives were considered even less. They would be absolute social outcasts. And what is God doing? He is saving his people because by saving Moses, he's saving his people. How? Through those that culture would throw away, culture and society wouldn't look at, culture would discard. Why? To show salvation is zero of us and 1,000% of God. Even the fact that it's Pharaoh's daughter, a Gentile. So here you have, you have a religious outsider, gender outsiders, social outsiders, racial outsiders, all being used to show that it is grace and grace alone. And second, to whom does Moses point? He points to Jesus. We looked at earlier the Gospel of Luke, and I showed you how we saw that Jesus' life is viewed as an exodus. But I didn't point out one feature from that description of the transfiguration. Luke chapter 9, verse 31 says, They spoke about his departure, his exodus, which he was about to bring to fulfillment at Jerusalem. Jesus' exodus was going to take place at Jerusalem. And what was about to happen at Jerusalem? He was about to die. He was about to die on the cross. So Jesus is bringing deliverance, liberating a people, forming a family, forming a community for himself through what? putting himself in the position of the ultimate outsider, the ultimate powerless one. Here's the one who's God of gods and Lord of lords, making himself utterly powerless, making himself utterly weak. His death on the cross, where it sure looked like, if you want to go by appearances, it sure looked like that the victor of Genesis 3.15 was the serpent, didn't it? It looked like it was the serpent crushing the head of Jesus where instead it was Jesus crushing the head of the serpent through taking the ultimate form of powerlessness, rejection, and weakness. Victory came through what to all appearances, to what everybody would describe. In fact, why did the disciples flee? Why did they flee in fear? It looked like they had to be on the run for their lives. It sure looked like they were on the losing team. 
But what were they bringing about? They were bringing about the ultimate, through the cross of Jesus, the ultimate victory, the ultimate crushing of the serpent's head, the defeat of sin, the defeat of death, the defeat of hell itself was taking place on the cross. Revealing what for us? The glory of God. And what does the glory of God lead to? It leads to worship. Let my people go. Jesus accomplished that through his death on the cross so that they might hold a festival to me in the desert. We walk and we live our Christian lives where? In the wilderness, in the desert. What is God's vision for that? That he would free us, deliver us, make us so free that our very lives would be a continual holding a festival, celebrating. And this doesn't mean it's absent of reverence and all that, but sometimes I think we put such an emphasis on that that we forget the vision of worship is a joyful celebration of what God has done for us in Christ. Does your heart have a lightness about it? Does your heart have a vibrancy about it? Does your heart have a vitality about it? Only the grace of God produces that. The Exodus is about God wants to liberate you from oppression, from slavery, so that he could bring you and form you so that we would be each other's family and friends, ultimately for each other, a covenant community. God has actually bound himself and bound his hearts up with ours. Do you believe that? So that we would be white hot, again in the words of Piper, white hot worshipers of him. Do we understand grace? Do we see the unfolding? The mystery was threatened at this point. As soon as we read Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, is going to kill all the male children, we should be going in our minds, uh-oh, drama, what is happening? But who gets the victory in the end? Who gets the glory? Let's pray. Father, it's a searching question for myself, for all of us. Do we understand grace? Do I understand grace? For it will truly be seen by the quality, the life, the vibrancy of our worship. Do we understand that we have been bought with a price, that we've been liberated, that we have been saved in order to live a life of worship, that we've been saved for your glory? Lord, I pray that we would understand these things, that we'd see it as a gift, see it totally by grace. And even now as we come to the Lord's Supper, we'd see that what we're doing is we're eating and drinking grace. We're tasting and smelling grace. We're having grace presented to our very senses. So Holy Spirit, as we behold this blessed sacrament, may we take it by faith in Jesus' name. Amen.